0: Now, a few years ago, I worked in a prison as a chaplain, and I worked in a couple of jails, and I absolutely loved it. I mean, as a chaplain, I would have the free run of the jail where I could go on and off the wings as I pleased. And being a chaplain, I would dress up in a shirt and tie, and whenever I'd go onto the wings, prisoners would come up to me, and the first question that they would ask is, are you the governor? (laughs) To which I would reply, no. I'm the chaplain. And then the second question will be, are you the imam? And I'll be like, no, I'm the Christian chaplain. And they'll be like, well, how does that work? And I'll be like, well, let me tell you. And instantly I would have a platform to share Jesus. Praise God. Now, one thing that confused both prisoner and staff was the fact that they couldn't wrap their head around the why, as to why are there so many different religions. And I'm like, yep, I'm with you. Because there is only one true God, amen? Amen. But therein lies the problem. Because you see, everyone is trying to lay claim to the one true God, and this is nothing new. As I mentioned last time, Everyone has a theology, but it's either right or wrong theology. And if we want to get the correct theology as to who God is, then we have to get it from the horse's mouth, as it were. And thankfully, we do, because the scriptures are not silent on this. Because in that passage that we're going to cite in just a moment, and I do hope that you have all done your homework we see that God himself begins to describe himself. And so we get this revelation directly from him. Amen? Amen. So that said, we're going to continue on with our series entitled, Who is God? Part 2. And if you have your Bibles with you, then please open up and come with me to the book of Exodus, and we're going to read from chapter 34 and verses 6 and 7. But before we do, allow me to ask, did anyone actually do their homework of memorizing the text? Anyone? And does anyone feel brave enough to come out and have a go at citing it? Perhaps another time. Don't worry, we've still got a few more weeks In this passage here, so plenty of opportunities. Okay, let's say it together. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. And it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And in verse 8, I love this. It says, and Moses quickly bowed his head to the ground and worshipped. Hallelujah. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Amen. Now, last time, we spent some time laying some foundations. As in, our passage is set within the context of Moses asking God to show him who he is. Exodus chapter 3. And apart from being told that God's name is Yahweh, he isn't given much more than that. But then, when we fast forward to Exodus 34, it is there that we see God gives Moses a full disclosure as to who he is and what he is like. And these verses in the Bible have become the most quoted in the Bible by the Bible. And what's more is that we saw that as we trace the name of God throughout the scriptures, we see how the name develops from a title to a personal God, and then ultimately how it all culminates and crescendos in the person of Jesus. Amen. Amen. And so that's just a little bit of a, a recap from last time. That last time we looked at the law. And so, building on that today, we will look at the Lord, because that's the next line in our text. Now, you may ask, why are these words, or this title, repeated? Well, it's because in ancient times, they didn't really have access to a MacBook or a PC, where they could easily underline, italicize, or embolden a bit of text. No, of course not. But rather, in ancient Hebrew literature, if you wanted to emphasize a certain point, you simply repeated it. And so, the Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, is the author's way of saying, slow down here, and pause, and reflect, and pay attention to what is about to be said. Now, last time, we looked at the name of God and its development. But today, let us look at the question of, why does God even need a name i mean what's wrong with being called just god and there's a long answer to that and there's a short answer to that and i'm sure that you're all you would all prefer the short answer this morning am i right yes. and it is that god has a name because firstly he is a personal God. And secondly, he has a name in order to distinguish him from all other gods. Because there are many. Now, as you know, the word Elohim in Genesis 1-1, it isn't a name, but it is a title. Kind of like doctor or lawyer, pastor or professor. Professor. But what you may not know is that Elohim can either be singular or it could be plural. It all depends upon the context. For instance, it could either be translated as God with an uppercase G or it could be translated as God or gods with a lowercase G. And as a point of fact... Scholars tell us that God in Genesis 1-1 is God with a big G. And so, the book of Genesis, it begins with, there is one creator God who spoke the entire universe into existence, and he is the chief Elohim. But having said that, there are also many lesser spiritual beings who are also called Elohim. Elohim, or gods with a lowercase g. Some benevolent, others malevolent, or evil. I mean, if we were to go to Exodus, chapters 7 to 12, there we find Israel are in captivity in Egypt. But Yahweh comes to the rescue via the ten plagues. And interestingly, each of the plagues are specifically aimed at one of the gods in the Egyptian pantheon. For instance, Amnon-Ra was known as the chief god among the Egyptian gods, as he was the sun god. So what does Yahweh do? Well... He blocks out the sun for three days, causing darkness to cover the land. Exodus ten twenty two. And this is Yahweh's way of saying Amnon Ra is not the king over all other gods, but I am. Amen. 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 Listen to what God says in Exodus twelve twelve B. He says, I will pass through the land of Egypt. And on all the gods, or Elohim, of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord, or Yahweh. Hallelujah. And so, up to this point, we see that Yahweh is at war with the gods of Egypt. And this war with the gods, or the Elohim, of this world, it continues to rage on today, does it not? More on that a little bit later on. Moving on to Exodus chapter 15. And a few weeks after, Yahweh has defeated the gods of Egypt. And as Israel begin to cross the Red Sea to reach the other side, they burst out into song and they sing. I will sing to the Lord. For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. Verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders, praise Jesus, in other words, not only has Yahweh defeated all other gods, but he stands in a league of his own, because there never has been, neither will there ever be a God like him, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods, who is like you, O Lord? Amen. And that is why, church, we worship on a Sunday morning and throughout the week. Because He alone is worthy of all blessings and honor, glory and power. It all belongs to Him. Praise Him. I'm getting excited up here. Oh, praise God. Think of the Psalms. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Psalm 96 and verse 4. Or, worship him, all ye gods. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Psalm 97. Now, Isn't it fascinating how the psalmist is calling all the other gods with a small g to worship Yahweh? It kind of reminds me of the doxology hymn, does it not? And if you know it, then please sing it with me. Help me, Carmilla. (laughs) It's where it says, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him. Not sure whether I can make the cut there, Mr. <laughs> Carmelo. But that was my attempt. Many, have, many have said, just keep your singing between you and Jesus, and that's that. Uh... <laughs> Jump over now with me to Exodus 20, and there we find the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words of Yahweh, according to Jewish culture, and it says. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, that is on the earth beneath, that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Wow. Now, note, there are two commands here, not one. Firstly, have no other gods or Elohim before me, and secondly, do not make for yourself a carved image or an idol. Now, In the modern world, we tend to collapse these two commands into one because we think that gods and idols are the same thing, but there's a difference. Because the gods are real, but the idols are not. In other words, an idol is just a statue, it cannot really do anything, but a god can. They can speak. And they can perform counterfeit signs and wonders. I mean, call to mind the magicians in Pharaoh's court and how they were able to mimic some of the miracles of Moses like turning their staffs into snakes. Do not worship other gods or bow down to them for I am a jealous God. The implication being that there are other gods therefore see to it that you are not seduced by them but worship me says Yahweh amen Amen. Amen. now speaking of jealousy in this context jealousy is a good thing because it's similar to how a mother is jealous over her children to ensure that no harm comes to them. I mean, have you ever seen a mama bear or a a mother swan and how protective they are over their young? I'm telling you, you don't want to cross her when her young are nearby. And that's how protective God is over us, and even more so. Unlike the gods of the ancient Near East. I mean, in that polytheistic culture, the worship of multiple gods was encouraged. And fidelity and faithfulness wasn't even a thing. They didn't even care. But not Yahweh. He is jealous over us, faithful, and He is for us. Amen. Now fast forward to the book of 1 Kings and chapter 11 and a few hundred years later we find the story of the great king solomon who turned polygamy into an art form i mean there are some guys who like to collect stamps and the like and i kind of get that but this guy he collected wives and even that wasn't enough because he then went on to collect concubines or mistresses if you like And in the end, he, um, you know, he uh, collected about, what, 700 wives and 300 concubines? Now, I don't know what he was on, but he's just asking for trouble. (laughs) Because it's hard enough pleasing one wife, let alone a thousand. It's just crazy, right? Therefore, it is no surprise... When we read that Solomon's wives turned his heart after other gods. And he was no longer truly devoted to the Lord his God. And this is so tragic. Because he went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. He built a high place for Shemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites. So he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Note how the gods are called by name, and nowhere does the text say that they are not real. Now, Ashtaroth is the goddess of Sidon, modern day Lebanon. And then there is Molech, who's the abomination of the Ammonites, modern day Jordan. And the image of this god, Molech, has the body of a man and the head of a bull. And worship to this God was absolutely deplorable. It was vile and just pure evil because it involved child sacrifice. I mean, a rabbi named Rashi paints the most dire picture and it doesn't make for easy reading. So you may want to brace yourselves as he writes. The worshippers of Moloch would heat up his bronze image and they would lay the child's sacrifice onto his outstretched burning arms of bronze. And then the drummers were instructed to beat the drums so loud that it drowned out the shrieks and the cries from the child as its life was violently ripped away. I mean, just pure evil, isn't it? And when God intervened, and orders the destruction of these pagans, he is accused by atheists of being barbaric. But when God doesn't intervene in situations like these, he is accused by the same of being uncaring. And so it's kind of like that saying which says, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. In other words, either way, God cannot win with some people, right? Anyhow. I'm getting on my soapbox up here. Let's move on and come back to the scriptures. And let us read Psalm 82. And I love this. It's a Psalm of Asaph. And it says, God has taken his place in the divine council; In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment in other words god presides over the divine council of the gods and again these some of these supernatural beings are good while others evil and we see glimpses of this council in job chapters 1 and 2 along with first kings 22 now We may think of this divine council as a scene from a film like Clash of the Titans or The Immortals or some other Hollywood movie. In that the gods are in the heavens and they're having a discussion about the humans who were down on the earth. But that's Hollywood for you. Because in reality, Yahweh is not just chairing a meeting, as it were. But he is reigning supreme. And he is rendering judgment on those supernatural beings. Because as Gerald McDermott states, they failed to judge properly. And so listen to what Yahweh says to the gods in the council. He says in verses 2 to 4. How long? Will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. In other words, the gods were acting wickedly and unjustly. And so Yahweh says, stop, stop the injustice, the violence, and the abuse. Just stop. And then he goes on to say in verse 6, I said you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die. And then in the final line of Psalm 82, Asaph prays and says, Arise, O God. Judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. And the word judge here is, simply means put the world to right, and that's a good thing. Amen. And so it's a prayer for God to rise up and to judge the gods. Now, moving into the New Testament and particularly the Gospels. There we find God answering Asaph's prayer as we see King Jesus coming and invading the darkness and crushing the serpent. Glory. And let's take a look at one particular account in Mark's Gospel in chapter 5. Because there we find the Lord and his disciples crossing the sea, crossing and going over into the region of the garrisons. And when Jesus steps out of the boat, he is met by a man with an unclean spirit. And this man, he lived among the tombs. He was in the graveyard and day and night he would cry out and he would cut himself because he was being tormented by the demonic. But when Jesus arrives and asks the unclean spirit its name, the demon replies with, my name is legion, for we are many. Now, a legion in a Roman army, it consisted of around 5,000 soldiers. And so this poor man was being oppressed and tormented by five thousand demons. However, even this multitude of demons are no match for King Jesus. Amen. And they knew it, which is why they beg the Lord to go into a bunch of pigs who were nearby. And the Lord permits them and they hurtle down the hill to their death. And it's a picture of the kingdom of darkness being expelled. Praise God. All that to say that there are spirit beings that are against us and their only desire is for our ruin and destruction. But take heart. Because there is a God in heaven, and He is with us, and He is for us, and therefore we do not need to be afraid. Amen. 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 Yes. Now, there are some Christians who find the thought of an evil spirit quite absurd, and so they sadly dismiss it altogether. Equally, There are others who seem to have an unhealthy fascination with the demonic. And so they go around looking for a devil under every rock. Now, I would love to say this morning that every evil spirit that we ever read of in the scriptures since 70 AD retired and are now dwelling on a tropical island somewhere. I would love to say that to you this morning. But it wouldn't. Be true. Because the truth is, these vile and wicked spirits are still very much in operation today, wreaking misery wherever they go. And if you don't believe me, then just take a look at the news and listen to the stories of all hell breaking loose around the world. Yes. There is a fallen human element to it, but there is also a demonic influence behind it. And to deny this would be inconsistent with the scriptures, and it would be inconsistent with the worldview of our Lord and the apostles. You see, there is a war that continues to rage on today in the spirit realm Which is why the Apostle Paul, referring to the enemy, says the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4. And this is so true. Because people who are made in his image are seeking. But they're all seeking in all The wrong places. It's like this. Becky and I over the summer were walking around London. And we stopped in Covent Garden for an ice cream, as you do. And as we're sitting there enjoying our ice cream and taking in the sights, all of a sudden we notice this queue that builds up and gradually it's getting bigger and bigger. And we're thinking, what's going on over there? And then we see it we see this makeshift booth with a sign that reads uh, psychic and tarot readings for £2.50. And I'm thinking, Lord, have mercy. Because these poor souls, they don't know what they're letting themselves in for. That They may think it's just a cheap bit of fun, but it's going to cost them dearly in the end because it always does when you invite the demonic into your lives, which is why the scriptures teach, keep. Away. Amen. Amen. Now, Jonathan Kahn, who's a Messianic Jew with a prophetic edge, he shares some fascinating insights in his latest book called The Return of the Gods. And in it he says, Ashtaroth in the Phoenician world is known as Astarte. In Mesopotamia, she is known as Ishtar. In Greece, she's known as Aphrodite. And in Rome, she is Venus. And she is the goddess of sexuality and unbridled sexual lust. And when Israel fell, it wasn't only due to Baal, the paganism, the god of paganism. But it was also due to Ashtaroth, known as the harlot or the prostitute meaning the sexualization of a culture and jonathan asserts that we are seeing a resurgence of her spirit today and she is anti-god and anti-marriage encouraging people to have multiple partners in this try before you buy type culture And sex and sexuality is further being warped and confused as we are constantly bombarded with the message of anything goes. Right? Now, where's it all coming from? In short, straight from the pit of hell and from the God of this world, the Satan or the devil. And he isn't content with tolerance only, but he wants every knee to bow. And he has a particular hatred for Christians because it was Christ and his word that drove him out because the reason the Son of God appeared was to what? Destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3 and verse 8. And so it is high time for us as believers to go to war with the enemy and to expel the darkness by allowing his light to shine both in us and through us. Amen. Amen. And hear me right. Our enemy is not people. It's not a particular people group a race or an ethnicity and neither is it your boss or your colleague at work or that person who annoys you something silly no because our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against spiritual wickedness in high places therefore our warfare is carried out on our knees in prayer and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the weapons of our warfare are what? Mighty in God. Praise Him. And so, let us put on the whole armor of God and let us be strong in the Lord and in the power of of his might. Ephesians 6.10 You see, when we look at those who have gone before us, we see how Elijah dealt with the gods of Canaan, how Moses dealt with the gods of Egypt, and how Paul dealt with the gods of Rome. And so we're in good company this morning. Amen. Amen. And so, let us not be intimidated or bow down to the gods of this world, but let us stand firm in him because greater is he who is in me, in us, than he who is in the world. 1 John 4. 4. Praise God. And so, in a world where people are confused about the many religions and are held prisoner by the God of this world, let us become radical for Jesus, holding unswervingly and unashamedly to the Christ and his word, partnering with his spirit in the Father's mission to make his Son known. Because this God has made himself known and his name is not Allah or Buddha or Shiva, but it is Yahweh. Hallelujah. So let us tell the world that Jesus Christ is Yahweh in the flesh. Because there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved but Jesus. And this God has made himself known to us today. And so let us continually know him personally, intimately in that secret place of abiding with him. And let us continually make him known. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you that, God, the whole work of salvation isn't ours, but it is yours, God. That this is what you have done, that you removed that heart of stone that we once carried, Father, and you gave us a heart of flesh. Father, you extinguished the beef that was before between us, Lord, and, Father, you called us onto your team. And, Father, you call us to now know you And, Father, as we go deeper into our walk with you, Father, we know that a target gets painted on our backs, God, by the enemy. That before we knew you, Lord, the enemy wasn't concerned, but the moment we said yes to you, Father, a target gets painted on our backs. But, Father, we want to thank you that you are our strength and you are our shield, that you are our fortress and you are our stronghold, God. And we thank you that as the the children's song says, as we run into that fortress, we are saved. And so, Father, I pray that, God, that we will know the protection, Father, of the triune God all around us. We pray, God, that as we continually, Lord, walk towards you and know you, Father, with greater depth, Father, that you will reveal more and more of yourself to us. That we will know you that just as Moses cried, that I may know you, show me your ways. That we will see your glory. Because God, there is nothing else out there. There is nothing of the flesh that can ever bring us true joy but Jesus. And So why would we settle for anything less but you? Father, we thank you that you have done, Lord, all of this. You have accomplished it, that we have been saved from sin, Lord, that we have been saved from the the power of sin. And one day, Lord, we will be saved from the very presence of sin when we are with you. But until that time, Lord God, until either we come to you, you come to us, God, we pray that you will strengthen your people. Father, give us grace beyond measure, Lord, to stand firm in that place, Lord God, knowing the one who stands beside us. And Father, we ask that you'll continue just to strengthen us and to walk and lead us, that we may live this life, Father, Lord, leaving a a Jesus footprint behind, Lord, for others to see. And for others to come into that fellowship and union with you. Knowing their sins forgiven. And knowing that they are one with you, Lord. That eternal life, it began the moment we said yes to you. So Father, we bless your name this morning. And we give you all the praise. And we give you all of the glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And I just want to...